This week on Best in Show, Paul Meskel on accents and award season fits. Jeffrey Wright on American fiction and letting Andre 3000 just do what he wants to do, people. And a recap of the unique Los Angeles Film Critics Association winners. Here's a tease. Women. (laughs) But first, a word from our sponsor for this episode, Disney Bundle. We are in the thick of the holiday season, and if you're searching for a way to sit back and enjoy some time with loved ones, look no further than the Disney Bundle. Home to all your holiday favorites, both classic and new, on Disney Plus, dive into the magic of the new season of The Santa Clauses, based on the 1994 classic, The Santa Claus. Or don't miss the laughs in the new holiday comedy, Dashing Through the Snow. As part of the bundle, Mia, you'll also have access to Hulu's wonderful library where you can watch the most iconic Will Ferrell performance in Elf or join the Griswold family for some chaos in National Lampoon's Christmas vacation. All of these and more now streaming. Get the Disney bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Hello and welcome to Best in Show, a limited podcast series brought to you by The Letterboxd Show. I am Mia Levicino, the West Coast editor here at Letterboxd, and Best in Show is all about award season. You know the deal by now. We meet this year's contenders, we get insider intelligence about the film ecosystem, and we dive right on into the Letterboxd data, but mostly we do what we always do here at Letterboxd, celebrate cinema. And here to celebrate cinema with me are my best-in-show besties, Hollywood veteran and our editorial producer, Brian Formo. Ahoy, besties. <laughs> and our editor-in-chief, Gemma Gracelood. I am doing furious jumping about being back in the room <laughs> with you two. Woo! Not safe for work. <laughs> <laughs> So not only are we celebrating poor things, as Gemma as, and just cinema in general, but this week's news has us doing one of my very favorite things to do in the whole wide world, and that is celebrating women. Brian, (laughs) my LA Awards partner, what was unique about the Los Angeles Film Critics Association winners this past weekend? Well, so last year, there already was something unique in that the LAFCA degendered the acting categories. There were still two winners in lead and two more in supporting, uh, but they're not defined by actor or actress, just acting. (gasps) Acting. Uh, And that's the only way that the Oscars might ever do something like this if there are still four acting winners. Because, you know, they need a number of actors winning throughout campaign season and for the at-home viewers. Uh, The Spirit Awards and the Gothams have already degendered the categories, but they still have just one lead and one supporting. Ah, so the the LAFCA? Do we call them the LAFCA? I never have, but we can try. Let's start it right here, right now. Hey, Lefka, we love you. So the Lefka have four. So hang on. I just want to get this right because math, you know. So the Lefka have four degendered acting category wins that are possible, two lead and two supporting. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And last year was the first year they did that, but the winners were in lead were Bill Nye. Bill Nye of Love Actually, yes. You mean Billy Mack. <laughs> Bill, Bill Nye for Living and Kate Blanchett for Tar. Oh, yes. miss her so much. <laughs> and in supporting it was Dolly De Leon. 
and Triangle of Sadness and Ki Hui Kwan uh, for Everything Everywhere All at Once. So they were divvied up the same as the past, even though there weren't gender categories. This year, however, all four <gasps> acting categories were women. All four. A sweep. Women. Women. What? Wow. Because because isn't the worry that if you degender the acting categories, then like Tom Cruise and Friends might win them all. And so and so that, that's like just been disproven this year by the lovely Lafka. It seems sexism is over. <laughs> Thank you, Lafka. So I, I looked this up. They honored Sandra Huller, the wonderful Sandra, for her performances in both Anatomy of a Fall and The Zone of Interest. And the other favorite lead was, of course, the furious jumper herself, Emma Stone, for Poor Things. And then for supporting, uh, there was Rachel McAdams, the lovely mum and Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret, and Divine Joy Randolph, already honoured by the New York Film Critics Circle for The Holdovers. And if you've been following our four favourite series on socials, you will know that we have Sandra and Emma in the bag now, but we're still chasing Rachel and Divine. But we've got upcoming chats with both of the LA film critics, the Lefka runners-up. Am I right, Mia? Yes, yes, yes. Our centerpiece interview of this episode will be with Jeffrey Wright of American Fiction, conducted by our wonderful Atlanta-based correspondent, Adesola Thomas. Before we get there, though, I am simply dying to share that I got to talk to Jeffrey's fellow Lafka runner-up, Andrew Scott, who earned a nod for his tender leading performance in All of Us Strangers. I also just want to say that today is my birthday, so this counted as a birthday treat for me. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, this Andrew Scott, everybody for says making Mia's day. Me. Oh, wait. Oh, oh sorry. Yeah, right? Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. We can sign off with happy birthday. <laughs> oh, Brian, holding out till the end. <laughs> holding out, out till the end. Okay, fine. Well, okay, tell us more about Andrew Scott. Tell us more about Andrew Scott. So you may know him as the hot priest from Fleabag, as Moriarty from BBC Sherlock. As Gethin and Pride. Never forget Gethin. Yes, and he's also just one of our greatest working actors of film, television, and stage, you know, but... Now, I know Andrew Scott as the latest interviewee I have developed a parasocial relationship with. I mean, okay, listen to this excerpt from the chat that we had at the All of Us Strangers LA premiere at Vidiots last weekend and tell me that that wouldn't happen to you two. Because you have, um, you have uh, hurt me psychically, artistically, yeah. uh, could you tell me some films that have hurt you psychically, artistically, um, much like, you know, Fleabag and yeah. uh, Seawall has also hurt me. Oh, Seawall, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, oh, first of all, apologies. Uh, second of all, let's think of ones that um, that really get me. Well, you know the one I was thinking about, because I was talking about this the other day with uh, with Paul uh, Mescal, uh, was After Sun. That's a real film that, that, I'm, that, that stayed with me a lot. Uh, really... Creeps up on you. Dead Man Walking. Have you ever seen Dead Man Walking? No, I haven't. Penn and, Sean Penn and um, Susan Sarandon. Oh. It's about a man on, on death row. Kills me. Uh, gosh. Uh, there, there are certainly two that, 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 that um, get to me, but I, I quite like being sad. I think there's something beautiful. I love, I love sad films. I love sad music. <laughs> well, maybe I'm a sad guy, but yeah, yeah. What are the movies that help um, untangle the knot in your heart? Some nice yeah. comfort movies oh, wow. for post All of Us Strangers watching. Post All of Us Strangers. Uh, the ones that, that I would um, uh, unwind with, I love a musical. I absolutely love a musical. Nothing better. Um, I like Overboard um, with Goldie Hawn, the Goldie Hawn version. 
Punch Drunk Love is a film that I adore. It's one of my favorite films. Paul Thomas Anderson obviously is a great genius. Um, and I love a romantic comedy, but I like a romantic comedy with a little bit of edge, um, which that certainly has. And the chemistry between um, Adam Sandler and Emily Watson, it's just mind-blowing. Just so many surprising, brilliant things. And I think when we're talking about love stories, I just think it's important that they don't have to be too saccharine, that actually audiences can take a little bit of um, grit in the, with the pearl, you know? Um, so that's one that, that I, I adore. Uh, those are some hot picks from the hot priest there. Uh, if Paul, your co-star Paul, has converted you to a best-in-show listener, my wife Kathleen has a special message for you. No, it's not that she wants to run away with you, but she says that you should you should be the runaway winner for best actor this year. So I'm tossing out my... My, my wife's pick. Thank you. Thank you, Kathleen. And we've got more from Andrew's wonderful co-star, Paul Meskel. Paul tragically could not be in LA for the premiere due to Gladiator 2 production commitments. So we will have to bro out about Mitski another time. But luckily, <laughs> our London editor, Ella Kemp, got him during a rare day off in London. That conversation is coming up in this episode very soon. Oh, there are some more winners, though, from LAFCA. There, I did it. Including the first big ones for The Zone of Interest and Jonathan Glazer. Best Film, and it won Best Director. You can find all of the wins from LAFCA on our Best in Show HQ page. That's letterbox.com slash awards. Blanked out. I was just busy looking at that list. I was also just looking at all the Golden Globe nominations that dropped this week. But least about the Globes. That list is also on our awards HQ. And more about the post. I am just going to dip my hand into our Best in Show mailbag because I know we had some performance-related questions. So hang on. <laughs> hey, nominate me for an Oscar for sound design right now. Yeah, we have, um, we have, sound, <laughs> we have sound effects now. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I'm good, at, I'm good at Foley. I can do um, footsteps and gravel too. I'm really good at it. <laughs> anyway, anyway, sorry. I have just opened up the envelope. Here is a letter from Liam. Dear Best in Show team, hello and welcome back to my ears, long-time listener, first-time emailer. Last year, I wasn't really following awards season too closely until the very end and ended up cramming as many movies as possible and nearly suffered from total movie overload. You and me both, Liam. This year has been better and I've been fortunate to have seen a decent amount of movies getting awards buzz that have also gotten a wider release. With the SAG AFTRA strike over and everyone available to talk about their movies, do you think that movies that were granted an interim agreement during the strike will have any sort of advantage over the bigger studio movies that were prohibited from press activities? Thanks for talking movies, Liam. Okay, this is a great question. I have a lot to say. Can I can I say? Go. Brian, okay. you're our insider. You like if anyone's gonna say, it's gonna be you. I love this question. The the quick response is no. The interim agreements didn't help anyone massively for award season, but let me explain why. Uh, due to when the strike ended, and I'm sure the necessity of being out for award season and December press was part of the timing for both AMPTP and the stars to get back to negotiate. This time of year is about all those Santa Barbara receptions, the LA, New York, and London award shows, cocktail meetups with the stars that you get invited to by being parts of certain groups who vote on things. It's very much like about who can actually get you the trophies. This The press tour is for the masses. 
but these are closed doors. I mean, for like, for example, tomorrow I'll be shooting messages to try to get myself at a good table for the Critics' Choice Awards. <laughs> uh, it's all about the insider things that happen this time of year, not the junket interviews from before. It's very, very in person, very exclusive. And trust me, I am at the low end of that spectrum. But it becomes obvious when you're at these events, and if you're lucky enough to be at these events, how important those interactions are. What the, inter- what the interim agreement did help with was the specialty box office, and that is great. So like A24, they had an interim agreement to do press. Looking at Priscilla's box office being north of $20 million because Jacob Elordi could not just walk the red carpet but also appear on talk shows, that was a benefit ultimately to its bottom line. The Holdovers, for example, missed that opportunity due to Focus being owned by an AMPTP company, and its box office is lower. But Paul Giamatti and Davine Randolph are now out there at events, and Davine Randolph is winning a lot of awards already. And just look, this is the last point about this, but look at the variety Actors on Actors series. Only three of the 20 participants could have done that execution if the strike was still happening. So that was just Greta Lee for Past Lives, Jacob Elordi for Priscilla, but he couldn't have talked about Saltburn and Rachel Zegler for Hunger Games, Songbirds, and Snakes. Basically, the only blockbuster that wasn't being put out by a struck company. And that was mostly to pair her with Little Mermaid uh, because Zegler is going to be Snow White next. So that was still like a giant AMPTP company representation there. We're very much back in the big company game now from Barbie to Poor Things, which is also owned by Disney, and maybe it'll be part of that Disney bundle. Would you also say that um, the the fact that the strike didn't start until the Oppenheimer stars had walked their premiere carpet, you know, the fact that it was all held off, held off, held off until Barbie and Oppie had had their big press run, you know, of course means that we're always going to see them in the conversation. Uh, absolutely. I mean, the the days I could, through my inbox, I could tell when the SAG strike was going to actually happen by when things were ending for Barbie and Oppenheimer. They kept getting extensions to do press. Do we have any more mailbag questions? We do. We do. We do. We have, we do have more. I'm just going to bring out one more for this episode because it's also okay. performance related. And it's, it's also a really excellent question. John asks... In the past decade, we've seen a spike in actors winning prizes for portraying real people, often with the help of extensive prosthetics. Uh, Since 2000, 24 Best Actor-Actress Oscars have been for performances based on real people. Increasingly, award-worthy acting is equated with disguise and transformation, rather than an actor simply being able to inhabit a role in their own skin. What does the Best in Show panel think about this? And do you see this trend changing? We're a panel now. Ooh. (laughs) Thank you, John. Great question. Mia. (gasps) Okay, here I go. (sighs) So just, just speaking for myself and not making any predictions, I hope that this trend changes because for me, I don't think that like total perfect imitation should necessarily be a goal of acting. Like I I do think that Gary Oldman's win for basically just wearing prosthetics in Darkest Hour was one of the darkest hours <laughs> in recent Oscars history. Um, agree that we should be rewarding the hair and makeup department for their hard work with the prosthetics and everything. 
But it does bother me when they let that do the weight of their acting. Like also the, the false teeth that Rami Malek wore in Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> oh, oh my God. I just think that it's a it's a different type of challenge to create a character from scratch. And um, as somebody who has done a little bit of amateur acting, um, that is that is my slightly informed opinion. Um, <laughs> like just not having in a blueprint is, is really, really difficult. So I say all of this while also acknowledging that Killian Murphy and Oppenheimer and Lily Gladstone in Killers of the Flower Moon are two of my very, very favorite performances of the year. So there is definitely room for those types of performances. But what I really admired about them was how they didn't let prosthetics do their acting for them. Yeah, it does involve a prosthetic nose, but I am deeply excited to see Bradley Cooper take on the maestro, aka Lydia Tarr's mentor, Lenny Bernstein. Um, I also really enjoyed Matt Damon's schlubby turn as Nike suit Sonny Vaccaro in Air. And I'll finally uh, get to see how Kaylee Spaney embodies Priscilla Prezi next week because I've been preferring to wait for big screen screenings as much as possible where I can. But it is true, uh, John, that true life portrayals are Oscar bait. In fact, our own Jack Moulton has a great list named An Oscar Worthy Life. And on it, there are currently 77 films that have won Academy Awards for their depictions of real people. Starting all the way back in 1929, 1930, with George Arliss winning for portraying the British Prime Minister and Conservative Benjamin Disraeli, right up to as recently as 2021 when Jess Chastain won for uh, portraying Tammy Faye Messner in the eyes of Tammy Faye. Um, but what was interesting was I quickly did some math before we jumped on of this list um, 77 films, but multiple wins. So more than 77 characters, if that makes sense. Cause you know, with Helen Keller must come her teacher. So, um, Jack's list shows I counted 46 male figures to 40 odd female. And, um, so I think that suggests that biopics are actually a good opportunity for women, for, for women actors to women. succeed at Oscar level. Women. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a, it's a massive question around how much work the hair and makeup is doing versus the person. And as we learned in the last Best in Show season uh, from the wonderful Jamie Lee McIntosh, who is in the running for Oppenheimer, prosthetics always wins over other kinds of hair and makeup. It's like it's the flashy makeup rather than uh, just a good old, you know, hair dye job that changes everything for an actor and for the audience. Um, so I want to go out on a limb though and support the actors who take on these roles because in a lot of ways it's harder with higher expectations um, from us than to build a fictional character from the inside out. So I don't know. My jury's kind of, you know, guilty both sides. <laughs> Who would you play in a biopic? Anne Curry. Oh. She, <laughs> she is the only other half Korean journalist out there. We went to the same school, University of Oregon. I've actually thought about this a lot. I would play Anne Curry. Thank you. I love this. And the award goes to. Thank you. Oh, it's an honor. <laughs> Would you play, Gemma? Lydia Tarr. Because <laughs> she's real. Because <laughs> she's real. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, sense. come on. <laughs> I can learn to conduct an orchestra just like Bradley Cooper did. Yeah. Brian? Uh, Warren Oates, the actor from The Wild Bunch. 
I don't know who's clamoring for that, but I maybe it's a bio a biopic about a uh, Robert Robert Ryan who was his co-star in that who has a fascinating story, and I'm just a bit player as Warren Oates. That's what I'm. Oh, <laughs> we're we are our own wild bunch. We really are, and you know what? We also love your award season questions, big or small or wild, any of them. Though we would love a few in particular about film editing and costuming. And if you have any questions for our hosts or for our film editor, please email podcast at letterboxd.com. And now, less of us talking about acting and more of actors talking about themselves. As promised, we have a double bill of hunks. London editor Ella Kemp sits down with Best in Show listener and last season Oscar nominee Paul Meskel to learn more about life on the other side of the velvet rope. And Adesila Thomas meets Jeffrey Wright, the star of Cord Jefferson's Tiff People's Choice winning film, American Fiction, not to mention, which I do have to mention, Mike Nichols' <laughs> HBO miniseries masterpiece, Angels in America, which Jeffrey won Best Supporting Actor for at the Emmys. That guy truly understands this broken country. And, you know, it's your birthday, so I will let you mention Angels in America because... It's your birthday. It's my birthday. I get to talk about Angels in America. <laughs> Enjoy these chats and we'll be back for winner, winner, chicken run dinner. Now for the main course. Welcome to the Best in Show podcast. I'm very, very happy to be here. For anyone listening who might not know this, you um, revealed to my colleague, Mia Livicino, at the Indie Spirit Awards that you've listened to the Best in Show podcast. I have listened to the Best in Show podcast, yeah. How does it feel to be here? It feels like a dream come true, to be totally honest. <laughs> <laughs> People, are, I'm now like a serious person in the world of my mind, yeah. This uh, is it, like you've done a whole awards season. I made it. But it's for the second one. Yeah, yeah, now yeah. you're on the show. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is it. We're very happy to have you on the podcast as Thanks a friend of Letterboxd. As we are, we're going to talk awards a little bit before going into all of us strangers. Right. Um, a question we really want to know from everyone. Can you remember the first award you ever won, not film or work yeah. related? God, I don't think it was the first, but the one that jumps to my head is when I was under 14, I won, like my team won the county final when I was so, so 13. That's the one that sticks out in my head mm -hmm. like or that was definitely the first like substantial thing that felt like yeah. not like juvenile like congratulations on your costume at halloween i mean that's nice yeah but did I, you win one of those i never won those that's <laughs> so why it was childish was like, so that's why it was childish <laughs> to me because i never got it whereas uh that felt, felt like something that as a team we'd worked towards and won mm. So when you are coming back into film and have to look at all of the awards that way, if I may, I'd like to go back to last season just for a minute, yeah. um, because everything we want to do on Best in Show is demystify awards season and yeah. kind of break it down and how it actually works. So I'm wondering if briefly you could tell us, once you are nominated for any one of many big awards, how does the season function in the sense? Like, because we hear that there's a way of like, you know, you stop doing films and you start doing carpets. What are the mechanics of that? So I'm probably not the best person to ask, or maybe it's a, I'm a good person to ask in the sense that I felt very, I don't know how I would function in that sense of being told that I can't work and that I've got to go and do this part of it. Because I think it could, it has the danger of being kind of like overexposy. And also there's the pressure of talking about work so much that you talk yourself out of existence that when you then arrive to set, you're like, God, I've spoken about acting so much and now I have to go back and do it. But kind of at the time I was rehearsing a play 
I was rehearsing streetcar. So the amount of time that I could actually do the carpets for was limited. Like there was weeks here and there. So like, I remember I was around just before I had to get on a plane directly after the Indie Spirits, for example, and go back and rehearse streetcar for four days. And that's the week before the Oscars, right? Yes. So then I arrived back into LA on say the Thursday. Mm. And then there's like, those four days are particularly exhausting because you've got like the CAA party, night before party. You've also got this insane mountain to climb in terms of like the day of the Oscars. And I think After Sun was a specific example in that it was never a film that was like Oscar baity. It was a, it was a film that kind of people really enjoyed Mm. and kind of just hung in the fight, you know? Um, and there's normally space for one or two. I wish there's space for more of those kind of films every year, but. So yeah, mine was kind of a niche specific experience of that. Mm -hmm. But I also know that like there might come a time in my career where I'll be like, if I was lucky enough to be in a film that was like, like say for example, a film like Oppenheimer this year or Barbie, where it's like very clear that that's going to be very much in the conversation. Mm -hmm. Like if I was in that and I was leading that film, of course I probably would do the like whole thing, but it's a big commitment. And also there's some people who are just innately good at that stuff. And there's Mm -hmm. other people that, Aren't, and I don't know, I, I just don't have enough experience to know where exactly I sit with all of that stuff. Yeah, fair enough. It must be the most, even just doing one of these ceremonies or one of these carpets is mm-hmm. um, deeply stressful and overwhelming. And I only say that as someone who's like on the other side yeah. of it. I don't have to do anything that you have yeah. to do. How do you stay, like, if you can stay grounded in any way, where do you kind of find the center when you have to be in all these places with all these people? Like on the red carpets? and Yeah, things. just staying like in your mind. I think... Actually, journalists don't realize that the impact that they have can be the thing that informs that experience. Can you give us tips? <laughs> well, Letterboxd are kind of a prime example of like, you'd be surprised that there's certain, not outlets, but if there's somebody that I've encountered on a red carpet that has asked me kind of like nonsensical questions, I'll just avoid them like the plague. Um, and I'm okay with that. But uh, like people like Letterboxd or like say an indie wire or something like that, I'll actively seek out because I know that they feel like little sanctuaries, like little islands along the red carpet where it's like, okay, I feel like a degree of, or like a, a commonality with <laughs> them that I can talk to them and I feel like I can catch my breath. And there's the whole photo taking of it all that just is a bit, it's an acquired uh, skill. Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. Um, first of all, thank you. That is no. very kind. No, We're all very happy. Truth. Truth. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the um, truth. Also, I'm now flagging this for like the BAFTAs. Like, t- let me know if I need to wear like a hat or something so you know I like, where to find I missed you. I did, couldn't find you at the BAFTAs. That's okay. You yeah. were busy. It's That's all busy, good. Yeah. It's all yeah. good. Next yeah. year. Next, Next year. year if that happens. Um, something that everyone wants to know beyond being asked the question on these carpets, who you're wearing yeah. all the time, I really want to know how you decide that. Is it a case of like there is some kind of dress code mm-hmm. from other organizations or people given to you or more like, what you want to put across in a certain place? What is the sort of strategy? Dress code meaning what? Like Just what you wear to these carpets. Yeah, I think... And like de- deciding who to wear. Like, are you making statements about like, you know, what the designers represent and what they stand for and that kind of thing as well? Yeah, there, there's that. That's definitely a consideration. There's also like, like I, I have the privilege of like working with Gucci quite like for the last couple of years and they have, they've been a big, like kind of, they've had a big impact on me in those situations because it's like, I find it tricky going into a fitting room and if they don't know you, they're just going to put you in something that they want to sell. But Gucci, on the other hand, I have a relationship with the people that work there and they know what I like. And 
that makes a big difference to me when you're standing in a car and you're being yeah. photographed by hundreds of people that you feel comfortable and you feel like you've had an input yeah. in that. Um, and it's like pretty immense privilege to have a big fashion house make something for you and wear it. Um, it's a cool part of the job or not the job, but a kind of appendage to yeah, the job. Of course, yeah, of course. Let's get into All of Us Strangers, yes, which is so deeply moving and devastating and very upsetting and very beautiful in, I must say, a very different way to After Sun. Yeah. I, it seems like what you have to do in this film, you're in a very different place. It's Supporting feels like the wrong word because that implies a kind of like hierarchy, but it's more like a sort of relationship and and the role that you play in that, you know, the dynamic with Frankie and Aftersun and Andrew yeah. here, just where you are in their lives comes at a very different moment. Well, I feel like it's like there could be an argument made that like Callum is supporting the story of Sophie and Aftersun. And uh, I think it, like... I have no issue in saying that like, it's definitely my job as an actor in this film is to support Andrew Scott's story mm-hmm. or Adam's story. But that's also the nature that like ties it back to like what it means to be in a relationship. Like you, his job is to support Adam through navigating his, his, uh, what's going on with his parents mm-hmm. navigating his kind of issues around his own repressed relationship with his own sexuality. Um, and, that's essentially, that's where my starting point with a Harry is. It's like, and I think it's important as an actor to know, like, what purpose do you serve for the story? And that's, yeah, that's just, that was my starting point with it. Your accent in this film, you are from the north of England. I'm not going to say specifically where, because yeah. I want you to tell me specifically where he's from. He's from, from. Leeds. He's from Leeds. Um, how do accents, which you have done many different ones of in different roles, info as well, it's a yeah. very different accent. How much does that sort of help you or add another challenge to access the different parts of the characters that were very different, but in, you know, different backgrounds as yeah, well? I th- thank you for asking that question, because I think there's something that you, Irish actors, for the most part, very rarely use their own accent. It's kind of, if you are going to become an actor and you're Irish, you need to know that like you're probably not going to speak in your... Except own. if you're Andrew Scott. Except if you're Andrew Scott, which I think is actually really important in this room that he was able to do that. Mm-hmm. But um, with some, like, there's this fetishization, I think, with lots of audiences, but it particularly, for example, me and Sarah using American accents and the thing, it's like, that's what the book, it, the book is set mm. there. And that kind of fetishization of like, let them use their own accents. I'm like, that's not how acting works, unfortunately. We can't just give you the voices that we have because A, it makes no sense. But anyway, besides the point, I do enjoy working with accents. I, like, uh, I think they help me distance myself from it. It also, like, it's something concrete to do in prep because I find yeah. when I'm prepping something, a lot of it is blind panic. Mm. So like learning a skill, something that's very useful. It's something that I can go like, okay, I'm going to dedicate two hours to this mm. Monday to the Friday with my dialect coach. That's something that I can like hold on to because the rest of it for me generally I'm learning is very kind of like ethereal and floats away from me. And then it's the Sunday before filming and I'm like, I have no idea what <laughs> is going to happen. Yeah. Not in a good way. <laughs> no. When yeah. you're when you're looking into his accents, um, obviously you're working with your dialect coach. Um, do you watch any specific films and look at roles? Um, sometimes, but a lot of the time, a lot of the work for me with dialect is finding a reference, like a vocal reference for somebody that I like. Like I never really even get their names, but we'll have like one go-to source. So one voice that we find and we agree that this is the tone. Obviously the sounds, like the, the authenticity of the sounds has to be right, but also 
you would be so surprised when you listen to accents, like the inconsistencies with like one person who's from from Leeds versus another person who's from mm-hmm. Leeds versus one person who's from the Midwest in the US and another person from the Midwest. It's like, and that I think isn't a cop but it's kind of freeing because it's like, of course it's different because it's like literally to do with your vocal cords and like your resonators. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's also one that I always knew that was going to be an important part of my career moving forward mm. was accent work. Yeah. For this film and sort of more broadly, I'm wondering if you could talk us through any sort of actors over the years or at the moment who have influenced you. And it doesn't have to be male specifically because I yeah. feel like Harry in All of Us Strangers is very much the kind of muse that is so often, you know, female, female over yeah. the years. And in the book and the original source material that... Uh, the relation, the central, like a romantic relationship between a man and a woman. So, uh, mm. yeah. But anyway, um, it changes all the time. Like, I love, I like, adore actors. I think they're like, they feel kind of superhuman to me and kind of people that I idolize. I think Anthony Hopkins, I've said it before and I'll say it again and I'll send it, say it to the end of time. He's just, I think, phenomenal. Michelle Williams, who, uh, I got to meet a couple of times last year on, on the award circuit. What is, was her reaction to meeting you? She, I have this story. <laughs> I you can it, brag, say oh, it. Oh, it was, she was just like this loom. Like I didn't know how, like that's the kind of person that I, I was like, I'm going to have to go up and say hello to her or I'll regret it forever. And she was so kind and generous and spent time talking to each other. And then, so this was like at the nominees dinner. And then I think the Oscars was the next day. And so I was sat on the edge of an aisle and then we were separated by now, but she was all the way at the other end of the next aisle. And I remember kind of leaning forward and making eye contact with her. And she leaned forward and just kind of did this like wave that I just, I melted. Your heart would stop. It just stopped. I was just like, I turned to my mom and I was like bright red and she was like, what's happened? I was like, Michelle, Michelle Williams just waved at me. So <laughs> there was that. So she like... Those two consistently, I could watch their body of work for. Well, you've mentioned Blue Valentine. Yeah, it's one I mean, of your favourites. That's, that's my, yeah, yeah, that's, although my like four favourites changes from time to time, that, like, mm. I don't think that's going to come out of there, to be honest. Are you ever going to reveal your letterboxed account? Mm. It's too shady on there. <laughs> no, maybe, maybe I'll do like some sort of thing that if. Uh, do you want to place a bet with us? And if you lose it, you reveal your letterboxed yeah, account. I, what's yeah. the bet? If Anthony Hopkins waves at you, no, stop it, because <laughs> that that uh, that would be tinge. That would tinge like one of the greatest things to ever happen like, in my life with kind of public I disgrace. I O L M I account now. <laughs> yeah, no, I think if I'm ever in a film with Anthony Hopkins, that's when I we get your account. Share my letterbox account, and I will also delete all my shady reviews. <laughs> It'll just be like four or five stars. What is the first prize you ever won for anything in your life? Ooh, wow. Jeez. I think I was back home in D.C. And I think I saw these absolutely ancient, ancient ribbons that I got. I don't know. I must have been three years old for swimming at the YMCA. In DC, it gets. I was like, "Holy cow!" I mean, that's been that's been in a few years ago, but uh, I think it was like some ribbons for swimming or something like that. Yeah, that's wonderful. I learned how to swim a few years ago. It really opened up my world. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a lot of water out there to explore. Most of the ocean is still unexplored. Yes, this is true. 
You've won many well-deserved awards in your career, including many trophies for Angels in America. Um, but I wonder what value, if any, you put on these accolades and the way that it gives actors uh, more permission or agency to kind of like choose their roles as their career progresses, if that's something that you think about. I don't really think about it, no. I don't really think that it's useful to think about these things. Uh, in fact, if I'm on set or I'm working and any thought of any accolade or award flashes through my head, I use like kind of a series of, uh, or at least one mantra to kind of get it out because it's distracting from the work. And uh, it really, at the end of the day, it has to be entirely about the moment and you know, the story that you're telling, if any of that stuff filters in, then it just diminishes the potency of what you're able to do. Uh, I suppose if, you know, if they're, if they must give these things away, then, you know, sure, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I don't mind being considered for it, but there's so much of it is out of, out of the control of, you know, the performer, the director, the writer. And, and I think it's better to focus on those things that we can control, which is the work that we do. Heard. Very well said. I'm really excited to talk to you about American fiction. Cool. I saw it a few weeks back and I was able to have a really great conversation with Cord um, last month. Uh, now I get to talk to you about Monk, uh, among other things. So the first question I have regarding American fiction is, what conversations did you and Cord have about Percival Everett's novel uh, and adapting its central commentary for the screen specifically? I read the novel late in the process. Um, I, you know, I read Cord's script. I started reading the Percival's book, and I realized that it, you know, Cord had really diverged away from elements in the book in a in a way that uh, was his own. For example, the book set in Washington, D.C., the, the arc of the sister, Lisa, played by Tracy Ellis Ross, the wonderful, the gifted, the hilarious, um, uh, that arc was a very different one. Cord had really, uh, you know, reworked it in, in his own image. And so I, I stuck with the script and also I kind of stuck with the, the book of my life in some ways. I, like Cord, found these kind of strange parallels between Monk's journey and our own. And for me, particularly as related to the relationship to family and to the responsibilities that, that fall to him when uh, he's asked to become the caretaker of, of she who took care of him, it was that kind of stuff that really struck a sympathetic chord inside of me and uh, and and I think as well with chord c o r d our wonderful writer director hmm. yeah, I appreciate what you're speaking to about family. I think that's something that really struck me about the film, although there's this central kind of like lovely, absurd, hard wrenching farce around my pathology. We also just experience Monk as a son and as a sibling and as this person who's like newly in a relationship. I mean, it's, it's I think we kind of toe the, the balance in a way so that it doesn't become farcical, but but satirical. And I think 
you know, satire in some ways is tragedy in disguise. So we wanted to make sure that we maintain that balance where, you know, it's, you know, you might see the trailer and think, oh, this is a comedy. Um, it's, it's funny, but it, it's not, to my mind, a comedy. Um, there's an underlying, there are under my underlying emotional elements to it, particularly as relate to his monk's uh struggles with his own emotional availability and his relationship to love and 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 to family there's a kind of you know there's a there's a wonderful pathos there you know that 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 the the humor rides on top of and i i quite liked that balance and and I think uh, Cord, uh, I think it was within the script that Cord had written. And I, and I, and as I saw the film last night, and I saw it for an audience the first time. Oh wow! Um, I, yeah, I think we, you know, we struck the balance very well. Thanks for pushing back on my use of farce versus satire. Yeah. I I agree that it's not a comedy, especially because there's so many ways that. Monk has to contend with belonging and authenticity, not only in his personal life, like with his family, but also at work. Um, to that end, I, I was curious, uh, what do you hope audiences feel, if anything, about the absurd situations that Monk and Black artists like him find themselves in? To find ways to feel satisfied in their work individually, but also navigate this pressure to be like legibly Black. I think, and it's been my experience in speaking to certain audience members, although I just saw the film last night for the first time with an audience, I have spoken with other audience uh, uh, members who who weren't black, who found themselves inside Monk's story, who, who in, in, on both the creative side and also on the family side, I simply hope that audiences, and it seems to be working across the spectrum, see something of themselves, something of their own lives within this story, and that it it has uh, meaning for them. But the film is also an invitation to a conversation. Uh, it's an invitation to the asking of smarter questions. I, and, and these are not questions necessarily for any one set, any one demographic group, but I think rather for all of us, we have such a, a, a dumbed down uh, series of conversations often around race and identity and culture, or we're afraid of it. Some of us to have those conversations here in America and and although we are all informed by these forces every day, whether we want to admit it or not, and we have been from the beginning of, uh, of American history, but what we lack, because we either want to avoid the conversation or we're traumatized by it or whatever the case may be, is that I think we too often, certainly as a collective, lack of fluency in race. And, 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 and therefore we, we, we rarely, rarely, so rarely speak of race on an, in intelligent ways. 
we're 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 so we're so woefully ill-equipped to have these necessary conversations. Um, and I hope that our film at least allows people people to gather around, you know, the, the campfire and um, and have you know a reasonably evolved conversation around around the issues that we raise. I frankly think that Cord. Uh, is a sharp observer of of race in America and culture and identity. I, I think that I am reasonably sharp as well, not because I'm particularly evolved, but out of necessity. <laughs> it's a, it is a means uh, a means of survival. So that's that's my my uh, or one of my my hopes for the film. I, I'm, I'm tempted to ask you, I've, I've been reflecting a lot on Monk and just this, I, this, like, he has stories he wants to tell, but there's also this like industry and I don't know, personality contests, other stuff that he has to navigate as a working artist. Something that's given me a lot of peace in the past two weeks is Andre 3000's new album. Mm. Um, just because he was like, I'm curious about wind instruments. I want to put out an album that's just about the flute. Uh, I wonder, have you heard this album and, or are there other artists whose work, um, struck you as being created from a place of freedom that you were particularly intrigued by recently or in the distant past? I think that is precisely what Monk is seeking is creative and intellectual freedom. Uh, it's, you know, that and it's tied to that same freedom that, you know, uh, black folks have been seeking out since, uh, you know, since the, you know, the, 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 the founding documents of our country were, uh, you know, in, included clauses about uh, the enslaved. Uh, and, and, and I, I did, I have heard uh, Andre's uh, 3000s uh, album and I I think it's so cool yeah I think it's you know because why not why not give yourself permission the th- he's giving himself permission he's doing what he wants he's playing the music that's in his mind body and spirit and no, it doesn't. It's not like everything else because everything else sounds like everything else. That is maybe for me at times the most disturbing thing about so much of the music and pop culture right now is that it all fucking sounds the same. It is so conformist and so small in its in its risk you you know there you, there was a time and okay I'm being you know grumpy like you know old head but where there were distinct bands bands had distinct sounds now everything is a click track same bass lines the same I mean you know it's all it's all like it lacks such creativity at the end of the day I find it disturbing and and even. I was seeing online and maybe, you know, every, all the negativity is already always magnified, magnified online. I was seeing these weird criticisms of Dre for this, for making this choice of people, you know, I need to hear this. Who cares what you want to hear? What did he want to make? You know, I mean, and the, and the kind of resistance, it was just, it's just, 
is baffling. That said, I think we live in an era where we have access to too many people's opinions. You know, everybody's a critic. The democratization of opinion is the worst idea in the history of mankind. You know, it's like walking down the sidewalk and hearing everybody's thoughts as you do. You would go absolutely mad. And I don't, we, you know, we don't need to hear everybody's opinion. There may be five people in the world whose opinion I value and I go to. That's all I need. I don't need to hear from everybody. So I think, you know, when I talk about the, you know, the, the kind of resistance to it, maybe I'm, I'm overinflating it because that stuff is pushed into our faces, all that stuff that's, in, you know, inciting and provocative and, and stupid. Um, but that's the nature of the, the, you know, the media game now. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm like, man, do your thing. Do your thing. You know, it's your thing. Do what you want to do. <laughs> I yeah. can't tell you. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. You guys, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I I appreciate what you're speaking to. Um, I sometimes feel a lot of gratitude for the internet. To the for, for our point earlier about talking about Nigeria, my Nigerian heritage. There are certain weeks where on Twitter I can know what people my age in Abokuta, in Ibadan, in Lagos, what they're thinking, what they're joking about, which is lovely in a certain sense, but also having. I don't know, thousands of people's opinions, preferences, ideas at finger. Like, I don't know if the human mind or the brain or the soul was equipped to be inundated with that many other people's thoughts all of the time. Well, the human mind, but also the human society can take into consideration, but we don't need to hear every, because, you know, I, I think so often of that Isaac Asimov quote about in America, the strain of anti-intellectualism where the idea is that um, my ignorance is just as valuable as your knowledge. Hmm. That I mean, I, I think of that every other day. <laughs> you know, girl, we're in trouble, <laughs> you know? In a big way. It needs to, it's just, and, 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 the, and the cynical thing is that the discord that is marketed, it's the discord that gives value to the commodity, you know, it's the incitement. It's the, you know, those things that, that, um, you know, that trigger us that's built into the business plan mm. for, for these technologies. Uh, Lisa Joy, who's one of the co-writers of Westworld, mm. you know, brilliant mind on this stuff. And generally said, she said, we were talking about kids and their use of social media. She said, I think in 25 years, there will be warning labels on this technology as there is now warning labels on packages of cigarettes. Oh, pack, yeah. uh, it's, you know, it's, it's really, it's detrimental, but I'm sure making a lot of money for a few people. Yeah. It's a very commodifiable way of, I don't know, divorcing us from one another and from ourselves. Yeah, it's, 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 it's viciously cynical. And, you know, but we talk a fair amount about, about all of this in a little show we did called Westworld. I know it well. My writing mentor, Gina Atwater, uh, was one of oh, yeah. the writers for the yeah. show. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, Gina. Westworld was a documentary. <laughs> yeah. And since it's my birthday, I'm going to say that Jeffrey Wright of Angels in America and American Fiction is 
Correct. Westworld is a documentary. Um, now on to winner, winner, chicken run dinner. As we know, not everyone watches an awards contender in the year it comes out anyway, which is why we have this final segment of the show. I'm going to say it again, you guys. Winner, winner, chicken run dinner, in which we revisit historical award winners that we've seen recently. And by the way, our namesake, Chicken Run Dawn of the Nugget, is out now. The wait is finally over. I know we'll all be watching that, of course, but what previous contenders or winners have we watched recently? Gemma, go for it. Oh, well, I have been watching this season's contenders over the last week, so I'm going to call back to the last month when uh, we sat down with our seven-year-old and watched the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy back-to-back in 30-minute increments over three weeks, which is the way to watch the Lord of the Rings. It was amazing uh, to revisit this because actually I hadn't watched them since they first came out. And just a little humble brag, I was... Yeah, I was, I mean, bits and pieces, right? You know, you see, you just kind of walk walk past it when it's playing on the hotel TV or when someone at home is watching it. But I never really sat down and went start to finish, front to back, soup to nuts, Lord of the Rings, the full trilogy. And yes, we will start on The Hobbit next year. He's still reading the book at the moment. But um, it was fascinating to revisit them because just little like best in show humble brag. I was on the red carpet for every single one of those films, New Zealand premieres, which, one of which was the world premiere. And it was just kind of wacky because I lived like two blocks, no, less than two blocks, one block from the Embassy Theatre where they all premiered. And so the idea that you didn't even need a car to get there, like I would just walk out my front doorstep from my humble little two-bedroom flat and kind of have to go five blocks that way to get to the end of the two kilometer long red carpet and then double all the way back. But anyway, um, yeah, watch them. I mean, what can you say? They won 17 Academy Awards from a total of 30 nominations. Uh, the Return of the King, of course, the last film finally winning Best Picture, um, holds the record for the most Oscars uh, alongside Titanic and Ben-Hur. So 11, 11 is the most so far. Of course, we know that Poor Things will win 37 Oscars this coming season. So, you know, it will take the record finally off Titanic, Ben-Hur and The Return of the King. But it was fun. It was, it was, it was a fun rewatch. And I had always been kind of annoyed by all those little hobbitses, but I finally, because I'd never read the books. I'm just not, not my wheelhouse, but I finally understood, uh, Compassion. I mean, not, not that I don't what? understand compassion, but I finally understood <laughs> compassion. Oh my God. You didn't know about compassion? <laughs> I, know about, I knew about compassion, but not in the context of how important it is for the Lord of the Rings. And spoilers, uh, Frodo is but the ring bearer, not the ring destroyer. And I never, I just never really understood until my seven-year-old pointed it out. I thought he was going to be all over Legolas and is, you know, sliding down the trunk of Ooh, that yeah. elephant thing. He didn't he didn't care less. He was like, I don't care about that elf guy. He was absolutely deeply invested in the relationship between Frodo and Gollum. And oh. yeah, and watching that whole thing play out through his eyes was incredible. I was like, oh, of course, of course that was Frodo's job. I understand now. I'm less annoyed by the hobbits. Not to brag, but today I just made my uh, fantasy football playoffs, uh, and my my team name is Bilbo Ballin. 
Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> so and good. I once had to teach my sister what empathy means and that it doesn't mean sh- having pity for somebody else. So if you if you learned if you learned compassion from Lord of the Rings, it's okay. I mean, oh, you know what I mean. You know, mind you, I am the person who wants to play Lydia Tarr in a biopic yeah. of that very real person. So yeah, so me. Brian, what have you seen? Uh, okay, so I'm going to start with a little bit of a preamble, but uh, as we noted, the Indie Spirit Award nominations, they're out. I'm going to do a little plug. We're partners with them, and they're a great organization. To be able to vote on them, the Indie Spirit Awards, you have to become a member of Film Independent by December 18th, which is just a few days away. Go to filmindependent.org. When you're a member, they send you all the movies that are nominated. I'm a member. Mia, do you want to be a member? I would like to. Will you sponsor me for my birthday? I will. I was just going to say, happy birthday. You're a member of (gasps) Film Independent. What? What? That's why you were saving the birthday (laughs) stuff for the end. Oh, it all makes sense. This is beautiful narratively. Oh my God, we need a speech. We need an acceptance speech. Here it comes, here it comes. I would like to thank Film Independent, my producer Brian, my editor-in-chief Gemma, my cat Brad, and my lovely interviewee Andrew Scott. Thank you so much. Yeah, so anyone like Mia, myself, you can all be members. Uh, And the thing, like, so we get to see a... Can I I be a member? (laughs) If it's your birthday. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah. fine, fine. <laughs> Jim, I can't be a member, but can't, can't be tossing off. <laughs> Brian just isn't like, he's just not giving out film independent memberships like cookies. I get it. <laughs> I, I, I gotta, we, well, actually, if I win my fantasy football league, you will be a member too. How about that? Yeah. Just, oh. just, just, just root Bullens, come home. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. So the reason why I'm talking about film independent is not just to surprise Mia, but the film that I rewatched won three Indie Spirit Awards in 1994. And that was Shortcuts, which won Best Feature, Best Director, and Best Screenplay at the 1994 Indie Spirits. I rewatched it because my wife wanted to see more Julianne Moore after May December, and who doesn't love watching mm-hmm. Julianne Moore? More of more, more uh, of more. Kathleen um, is so right. I just want to yeah. say she's been so right this whole time with her Andrew Scott and Julianne Moore love. Continue. And and also, so I recorded a podcast episode with Slim and Matt Singer for Four Favorites, and Shortcuts was derided in Los Angeles Plays Itself, which was one of Matt Singer's picks. Uh, for not showing enough of Los Angeles. And that seems strange to me because they went to Downey, they went to Alhambra, they went to so many far-flung places in LA. So I ranted on that podcast, but it was edited out for time. So I'll just say (laughs) for here, Madeline Stowe is fantastic. The jazzy score is great. It's got a great swath of LA, regardless of what Los Angeles plays itself, which I enjoyed watching, regardless of what that says. It's still a little weird to put like Raymond Carver in LA because Raymond Carver is like a Pacific Northwest darkness, uh, evergreen trees, creepy evergreen trees and barely lit roads. And it doesn't really like, it doesn't make sense to move it to LA. And like the best section from his uh from his short stories is they actually go camping in shortcuts so they had to like leave the city to (laughs) to to reenact that but i love both the movie and raymond carver's work 
separately. Uh, Mia, we're also book buddies. Have you ever read any Raymond Carver? I haven't, but when I worked at Powell's Books in Portland, Oregon, he was a total mainstay because of, as you said, he is a Pacific Northwest icon. So adding to my adding to my read, my read list, watch list, read list, <laughs> to read pa- list. Speaking of Pacific Northwest icons, Mia Levacino, <laughs> birthday lady. That's right. What have you been watching? Oh, y'all, I watched a silly little film that actually ties into our upcoming Love Actually special episode dropping next Tuesday. So mm-hmm. here we go. I watched a little ditty called Florence Foster Jenkins. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> so this this was actually a, a big awards contender of 2017. Um, Meryl Streep earned an Academy Award nomination, one of many, many, many that she's earned over her career for her leading role as Florence Foster Jenkins, a woman who becomes gravely ill if anyone is mean to her, much like me. Uh, <laughs> Stephen Frears's period biopic also picked up an Oscars nod for best costume design and won the BAFTA for best hair and makeup. But most importantly, Hugh Grant was nominated for best supporting actor across the BAFTAs, Critics' Choice, Golden Globes, and SAG Awards. I believe he earned this for his elaborate choreographed dance sequence, a link to which I will include in the episode notes. <laughs> P.S. Slim, I know you're listening, and I need you to know that Rebecca Ferguson also features in this scene, so you should watch. Okay. (laughs) Finally, this is my last tidbit. Okay. It was nominated at our favorite awards body, the AARP Movies for (laughs) Grownups Awards. It was nominated for Best Grownup Love Story. Isn't that beautiful? Nominated but didn't win. No. It was nominated for quite a few things. Didn't didn't win a ton. What what year was Foster Jenkins? 2017? 2017. Best Grownup Love Story. Also nominated that year. Denzel Washington and Viola Davis for Fences. Oh, uh, Michael Constantine and Lainey Kazan for My Big Fat Greek Wedding 2. Two. The wonderful Margot Martindale and Richard Jenkins in The Hollers. Oh. And Susan Sarandon and J.K. Simmons in The Meddler. So which of those beat out Meryl and Hugh? Fences. I don't know. Did it? Uh, what? <laughs> I, would, I, would guess, I would guess Fences, but I love some Meddler uh, representation. I think that movie's a lot of fun. <laughs> the Hollers. That's one. Margot Martindale and Richard Jenkins. What a pairing. Okay. Sometimes I'm wrong. Hey, sometimes I'm wrong. So what? Mm, I haven't seen The Hollers, but I think we all had better choices. (laughs) (laughs) I cannot believe, mind you, I haven't looked this up. I would be outraged if uh, Liv Tyler and Viggo Mortensen didn't win for best grown-up story, uh, grown-up love story at the AARPs, given how old (laughs) Liv Tyler's character is. How old is she? Like a thousand years or something? Is that right? (laughs) (laughs) I have one last birthday question for you. If your local favorite local cinema could program any film on your birthday just for you and your friends in the best format possible, starring Hugh Grant, what would it be? (laughs) Starring Hugh Grant. I mean, okay, so like I would obviously say music and lyrics, but I've already seen it on 35 millimeter. So it Ugh. feels like I've I've already I've already lived that dream. Um, but my my second favorite Hugh Grant rom-com is not Bridget Jones's diary, as you would think, but it's actually Two Weeks Notice, starring Sandra Bullock. Oh. Yeah. Okay. 
Vidiots, are you listening? Los Feliz 3, are you listening? Come on, guys, let's do this. If you ever need anybody to do a Hugh Grant retrospective, I'm here, I'm available. And that's the pitch. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Best in Show, a limited award season series brought to you by The Letterboxd Show. We would love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word to other award season obsessives that this is where the great conversations are, all the way past The Letterboxd year in review and into the 96th Academy Awards. As you might have heard, we have an awards HQ on Letterboxd. Letterboxd.com slash awards. Follow us there. You can follow all of us individually. You can wish Mia a happy birthday on the day that this comes out using the links in our episode notes. And don't forget to send us your award season questions. We read a few today. You might get it read out loud. Email podcast at letterbox.com. All category questions or film programming. What would you do? Are welcome. Oh, yeah. Thanks to Liam and John for your questions today. They made for great conversation. Thanks to our crew, Letterboxd member Trent Walton for the music, Ella and Adesila for their wonderful interviews, George Fennick for writing our newsletter, Slim for making us sound amazing, and Sophie Shin for production. And Brian, as always, our awards king for overall producing and just insidery insiderness. And you for listening. Best in show as a tape deck production. I just, I just noticed that we all spoke with our hands for the outro, like we really needed to. <laughs> I didn't need to tell you to up the oomph. You were there. Yeah, had to. It was acting. Acting. <laughs> this, this, this is a Tape Deck Podcast. Ooh.